Well, do keep that passage open in front of you or check it out on the big screen. As we continue our series in the book of Daniel, looking at how to live as a minority in this society that we're now in. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We thank you for your word and we thank you that it speaks to us of how to live as your people whilst we wait the Lord Jesus' return. We pray that you would help us now to see who has wisdom and to know you better. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the fascinating things I've observed in my time has been the uh, incredible increase in education levels in Australia. It used to be in Australia that you went to university and you got your degree and you were set up for life. That was it. You're done. And you were among a tiny minority of people who had a bachelor's degree. And that was before the great multiplication of education which has occurred across the Western world but especially, it seems, in Australia. For now, it seems there's like a degree for everything. Uh, professions like nursing now require a degree when it wasn't required before. Other professions require more than just a degree now. A professional year, an MBA for accountants, for instance. Uh, in theology, we've had the same trend happening. Uh, when John Chapman changed the way we did preaching, an LTCL was all you needed as an Anglican minister. And he preached just fine. Now, well, they went through, you needed a, a bachelor's degree, a three-year degree. And then it t turned into a four-year degree. Uh, and then, of course, now they say you need to keep learning and growing, so you have to do an MA, uh, a Master of Arts, um, after. And uh, look, if you really want to progress up the ranks in, in the clergy, you've got to have a PhD so that you can speak in a language that no one else understands. <laughs> Education has widened and deepened and it's phenomena that's been across our society. Uh, we are probably the most educated people who have ever lived in all of history, for better or worse. And in one sense, it is a wonderful thing. Education has been shown to increase economic performance. And so our society enjoys tremendous, tremendous wealth overall, partly because of our highly educated workforce. So modern Australia is clearly the most superior society in all history. Oh my goodness, some of you are taking me seriously. Okay. Obviously, that's not the case. Um, because our society's high level of education has meant nothing in terms of our marriages, our happiness, or our sense of community. Education doesn't equate to wisdom. And it's wisdom that helps us to understand the best way to live life in this complicated and fallen world. There's nothing wrong with education per se, but wisdom... Real wisdom is something far better. And it's also seemingly much harder to attain. Where is real wisdom to be found? 
Well, someone else who lived in a highly educated society for his day was this guy called Daniel. And there was a question in our passage today about who was really wise. Where does wisdom come from? Well, let's go and look at Daniel 2 and see what they find out. Have a look at verse 1 again. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. The story starts with the king of Babylon having a troubling dream. If you've ever had a troubling dream, where you woke up in the night and you're all in a sweat and you can't return to sleep because your heart's going thump, 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 then you know how he feels. It's horrible. Nebuchadnezzar, though, had a feeling about his dream. He had a feeling that it was more than just a dream. And, of course, we find out later in the passage that he was right. He has, a, he has a feeling that his dream actually means something, something that's important about the future of his kingdom. So it could affect millions of people, this dream. And so what does a king in the ancient Near East do when he has a troubling dream that could have meaning, that could affect the entire kingdom, the entire Babylonian empire? Well, he calls in the best of the best. Look at verse 2. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. The king calls in the wise men of Babylon. Uh, they have their specialties. They're, some are magicians, some are enchanters and so on. But they're all the kind of people that kings in the ancient Near East would call on to know something about the future of their kingdom. Today, if we were going to translate it into today, the prime minister would probably call on the bureaucrats and the economists and the focus groups to find out what to do. That's what we do today. The wise men of our age who will give, hopefully, the right advice on how to run the kingdom, I mean the country. Nebuchadnezzar has the best of Babylon come to interpret his dream. And so the wise men do what is standard, which is in verse 4. They ask, can you tell us what the dream is so that we can interpret it? And then all hell breaks loose in verse 5. Because the king does something that has never been done before. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honour. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Nebuchadnezzar here is showing just how smart he is. He is one smart king. And it really shouldn't surprise us seeing he conquered a massive empire, so he must have had some brains to do that. He is a general par excellence. But normally a king would seek the opinion of the wise men as to their interpretation and accept whatever they said 
as being oh, what he should do. But Nebuchadnezzar is far smarter than that. You see, he knows that they might just be, you know, making up what the interpretation is. And so he needs some proof. So he wants them to tell him the dream first, and that will prove that they really have the power and the wisdom, and they aren't just making it up. They've got to prove that they know the interpretation by saying what the dream is to start with, which, of course, he hasn't told them. And, of course, he makes his demands with the king's power, which is either to reward or to execute. Now, the wise men, who are wise for a reason, uh, ask the king, tell us the dream again, in verse 7. Either they think the king must be jesting, or perhaps they're trying to buy time like the king thinks in verse 8. But either way, it doesn't work. For the king is neither joking, nor is he impressed with people wasting his time. He wants to know the real interpretation of his troubling dream, and if he doesn't get that, he's going to kill them all. And this leaves the wise men of Babylon desperately protesting in verse 10. Have a look at verse 10. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or any enchanter or astrologist. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. They do not live amongst humans. The wise men of Babylon protest that the king is asking the impossible. For despite all their education in all the mysteries of Babylon, they can't complete this feat. In fact, their education and learning is of absolutely no help whatsoever. Because no one can tell you the content of someone else's dreams unless they've been told beforehand. That's impossible. It's like being asked to make up a square circle. Try doing that in your spare time. See how you go. Or maybe trying to add 2 plus 2 and get 365. That's impossible. you can almost feel the outrage and the consternation of the wise men of Babylon. It's as if they're saying, hang on, this is not part of our workplace agreement. It says here in section 7.2 that you tell us the dream and then we interpret it. That's how it goes. They are desperate. But it does them no good. For in verses 12 to 13, it goes up a notch. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends 
to put them to death. Every wise man in Babylon is going to be executed. The king is going to kill them all. Presumably because he's decided that they're all charlatans and frauds. There's a part of this where you read it and you are just horrified at this absolute power that the king is showing here. It'd be the equivalent of the person who wished that all the people in run things in Canberra died, but who actually had the power to make it happen. That'd be a horrifying thought, isn't it? It's terrible. We, we can see here the problem of absolute power. But importantly for Daniel and his friends, this order includes him and them. Every wise man in all of Babylonian empire is going to be executed because the king has not had his dream told to him and then interpreted It is a monumental crisis. So how does Daniel respond to this crisis? Well, surprisingly, he responds wisely. Maybe not surprisingly. First, he has this wise speech in verse 14. And we know it's wise because we're told he's spoken wisely. And then he asks for time in verse 16... But then he does the wisest thing of all in verse 18. Have a look at verse 18. You can see it there. Hey guys, let's pray. Like really pray. Because our lives are on the line. And in verse 19, after praying, he is given the dream and its interpretation by God. And the day is saved because of the wise actions of an insignificant Jew from the minor province of Israel in the mighty Babylonian Empire. It's quite ironic, isn't it? All the wise men of the Babylonian Empire can do absolutely nothing. But a simple Israelite on his knees, asking God, saves the day. At the end of the day, the wisdom of seeking God's opinion was better than all the education of the Babylonians. Which leads Daniel to his song, which sums it up beautifully for us in verse 20 to 23. He sings, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. It's 
Quite a powerful song, this. Emphasizes both the sovereignty and the wisdom of God. He's both in control of the nations, and we'll look at that more next week. But crucially for us this week, he is the one who gives wisdom. He reveals what is hidden. It is God who decides who's wise and who's not. Friends, as we look at Daniel 2, we ought to realise that wisdom is not gained by lots of study. It is a gift from God. And that means the wise thing to do is to pray to God and ask him for wisdom regularly. The wise thing to do is to seek wisdom from the only person who can give wisdom, and that is God. The words of the wise men in verse 11 show that even they have worked that out, that the wisdom comes from God. Their problem is they trusted in gods who cannot speak. But we have a God who has spoken. So let's ask him for wisdom to live as a minority in this society in which we live. Now these days, some of us have visions, and that's okay. But wouldn't it be wonderful if, you know, God had written down wisdom for us so that we could just access it at any time? Wouldn't that be a good thing? It's true, isn't it? What we have in the Bible is the most precious resource. At any time of day or night, we can go to it for real wisdom. be tremendously sad not to do that, to leave a gathering dust on a shelf. Friends, let me encourage you to be people of the Word, to regularly open God's Word by yourself or with others or both and get God's wisdom. The author of life knows the best way to live life, the wisest way. So why not go to him regularly and ask and seek for his wisdom? But also as we live our lives in this society that proclaims to us that it knows best all the time, that it is so educated, so smart and knows so much more, let us remember Daniel chapter 2. For education does not equal wisdom. And our society is not always right about everything. In fact, like all societies, it makes mistakes and fails to be wise. Let us not be intimidated, should they call us un-Australian or on the wrong side of history or whatever insult that they throw this week 
when they decide that they know better than God's word. Now, there will be times when our society does get things right. Every society does. In which case, we go along with that. But at the times when they go against the wisdom of God that we have given to us, then we ought not to go along, nor be intimidated by them. For in the end, education is a nice thing, but it is wisdom for life that counts most. And God is the one who has wisdom for life. He is the only source of true wisdom. So let us look to God and ask him for wisdom instead. And ignore the insults of our society. And friends, as we do that, as we live differently and model the wise way to live, in all its facets. You know what? Just like in Daniel, and just like throughout history, the wise way will prove itself over time. And when our society is but a distant memory like the Babylonian Empire, the word of the Lord will keep going on. It will remain forever. Let us pray and ask for confidence in the word.